Welcome to Anorak, the happy podcast for kids. We have jokes, we have questions, we have experts and we have tons of fun. Let's learn about cities. Hello, Anyasu Anorak. I'm Eon and six years old. I'm from South Korea. I'm so excited now because I'm going to take you around my favorite places in my city. Are you ready to join me? Okay, let's go. My first favorite place is Extraordinary Experiences to who live in big cities like me. I can pick blueberries, strawberries, and other fruits. Also, I can dig out sweet potatoes, normal potatoes, and other vegetables too. There are some cooking classes with what you take from the farm. Also, you can take rest of them with you. It is so much fun. Just imagine. You live in city, but you can also enjoy rural life. Isn't it good? Okay, next place is a historical brilliant castle called Hwasongyinggung. This fortress was built in Joseon Dynasty. What I most liked in this place is tradition martial arts. Literally, my jaw was dropping while I was watching it. Also, I love to look around traditional architectures in there. Here comes the last favorite place is Fall Village. This introduced traditional culture from Joseon Dynasty. I love performance, including Dunga, which is farmers' music and martial arts on horseback. Can you imagine people do martial arts on horseback? I was blown away when I watched it. It was so amazing. Plus, I could try various traditional Korean food at Market Street. It was so delicious. It was great time to meet you. See you then. Be safe, my friends. Bye-bye. So, hello, my name's Margaret Tessera. I'm the Head of Economics and Business Advisory at Jacobs. Jacobs is a large engineering company that helps cities to develop fundamentally. Hello, my name's Ethan. I'm 11 and I live in England. Why are there so many grids in cities? Grid-based cities are exactly as they sound. They're streets that cross each other at 90 degrees. This system of designing cities has been around a very long time. As early as 2600 BC, 
major cities in the Indus Valley civilization, where modern day Pakistan and India now lie, were based on a grid. Last year, Chinese archaeologists discovered the country's earliest multi-grid city layout, which dated back to 2070 BC. So there's obviously some very big advantages for cities being based on grids if they've been around for so long. They were adopted in early cultures, including Egypt, Babylonia and China, but became widespread when the Romans started to apply the approach to building cities throughout their vast empire. This was all created so that the Roman Empire could expand very efficiently, which is where the foundation of grid-based cities really came from. This idea was adopted across medieval Europe, in the south of France, in England, Wales and the Netherlands. Uh, The Spanish also liked the idea of a grid-based city, and when they went off and colonised South America, they started building cities there on the same basis. In fact, in 1573, King Philip of Spain created a rule book. And these rules specified a central plaza, and this plaza could be a square, it could be a rectangle, and it would have eight principal streets running from the plaza corners. So the ideas of grid cities has been around for a very long time and came back again during the Renaissance period in Northern Europe. So places like Mannheim in Germany, Edinburgh and Glasgow in Scotland and Derry in Ireland were all based on a grid plan. They can also be found in Russia, Australia, Canada, but were particularly popular in the United States of America. And the reason why all of these cities were built on grids is that there are some very strong advantages to this type of design. They're very simple to plan and they're efficient in providing things like drainage and sewage networks. They're quick and easy to segment land and make plots available for sale. And it's cheaper to build right-angled buildings and they're the most convenient form to live in. A grid network is good for pedestrians because depending on the size of a block, a grid provides a walkable street network and it makes it much easier to navigate. They're adaptable, so you have these blocks and plots that you can easily adapt over time. And they're good for retail stores and restaurants as they offer a lot of corner lots. Personally, I prefer organically developed cities. I navigate by landmarks. I like to see a shop and think that's where I turn left or right, rather than thinking whether I'm going north or south or east or west. But that's probably because I grew up in a city that isn't based on a grid. How far apart would parks be in a city? I think this is a really interesting question and really tricky to answer. Um, I'm a regular user of parks in London and during the coronavirus pandemic, I've seen many more people on my normal walks from a park than I would have normally. And so I think we need to think about, first of all, what the role of a park is in a city. A park's a great place to hang out with your friends and your family. It's good for playing games or simply relaxing and enjoying nature. Um, And research has shown that green spaces have many health benefits. They can improve your physical health by making you more active. That means people are living for longer and they're healthier for more of their life. They bring mental health benefits, so they reduce stress. They encourage mixing of different people, which improves social cohesion. So it means that you're more likely to get to know your neighbours and different types of people. And they can help with environmental impacts as well. So they reduce exposure to air pollutants, they store carbon. The amount of public green space varies widely in cities across the world. And according to the World Cities Culture Forum, Istanbul only has 2.2% of its area dedicated to green space, whereas Singapore and London have 47%. That's a very large difference in people's access to parks. And the way that we plan for parks in London 
is based on distance from people's houses and distance by type of park. So the London plan, which is set out by the Mayor of London, categorises open space by size, with regional parks being the largest, they're about 400 hectares, and they need to be publicly accessible parks with a range of facilities and features that are unique within London. And then we have pocket parks, which are very, very small areas, but very local, and they're around under 0.4 hectares. So a regional park should be within a maximum of eight kilometres from someone's home, whereas a pocket park should be within 400 metres. My name is Manjushri. I'm nine years old and I live in the United States of America. What's the largest city in the world? We need to start with how we define a city. Is it the size of the area covered? Is it the density of the population? Um, In the old days, it was very clear. There used to be a wall that surrounded the city, so we knew that was a city. Nowadays, there's quite a lot of urban sprawl. So how far into the suburbs does a city actually extend? Many countries use a minimum population size to define an urban area, but that size can be very different. So in Denmark, it's as little as 200 people. Argentina goes up to 2,000. India, 5,000. Japan is 50,000. And China is 100,000. Last year, the World Bank proposed a simple definition to try and enable comparison between different locations. And they define three types of settlement. So to them, a city has to have a population of at least 50,000 residents and they have to live quite closely together. So you need 1,500 residents per kilometre square. So it's quite dense. They've said that towns and semi-dense areas will have a population of at least 5,000 residents, but they can be more spread out. So they have to have a density of at least 300 residents per kilometre squared. And anything else will be considered a rural area. My name is Emma. I am nine years old and I live in England. How do cities grow? How many years does it take for a full city to develop? Most cities don't grow as quickly as you expect. So London adds around 30,000 homes a year, despite there being so many people arriving. But we're building around 1.5 million square metres of office space currently. So that's quite a large amount of building. There's a variety of approaches to building cities around the world. In some countries, there are rules around buildings that can include not only where they can be built, but how densely land can be developed or how they can be built. In the UK, these rules cover things such as environmental hazards. So we don't want people to be building on floodplains, for example, or areas that have a contamination risk to the residents. We like to protect our heritage in the UK, so we have special rules that mean that you can't change listed buildings, and conservation areas means that you can only build certain types of buildings within those locations. We have some really interesting, very old rules as well in London. So one of these is things like a protected view of St Paul's Cathedral. In 1888, the London Buildings Act ruled for architects could only be allowed to build structures that were the height of a fireman's ladder, so roughly 10 floors. And this was to ensure that the views of St Paul's Cathedral were not obscured. And this rule didn't change until 1956. Whereas if you think about it, in the 1930s, engineering advances led to the development of skyscrapers in New York. And London architects were very keen to follow this new trend. 
but there was a kind of resistance and there was a desire to protect St Paul's Cathedral and views of St Paul's Cathedral. So we introduced in the city an idea of protected views and there's eight protected views, which mean that you can't have buildings that get in the way of St Paul's Cathedral from certain locations in the city. There's a real kind of interest in how cities grow and who's growing fastest. And there's quite phenomenal growth that's going on around the world. So Delhi in India had a population of 30 million people in 2020. It's absolutely huge. And for the years between 2000 and 2020, they had 730,000 new people arriving into that city each year. So what's attracting all of these people into cities? Why do they want to live there? One of the key reasons is population growth. So people are having babies and lots of people are migrating into cities and they migrate into cities to seek opportunities, either employment or culture. Um, Cities are great places for a variety of activities. If you've got lots of people, you can have lots of different types of activities. So you can have restaurants that represent lots of different foods. You can have different entertainment types, so many different types of cinema or theatre, or you can have different types of shops as well. And having lots of people living close together means that you can provide services more easily for the public sector so you can provide better health facilities you can provide public transport so you can get people around more quickly and more environmentally friendly as well Um, but in the past UK cities um, started to grow particularly in the north uh, due to the industrial revolution so it was a huge change from people living in rural areas and mainly doing agriculture And then the Industrial Revolution came along and there was all of these opportunities available in factories and opportunities to make more money. Um, So that sparked the growth of places like Manchester, Leeds and Liverpool. Many cities are now going into decline. So Manchester and Liverpool have half of the population that they had when the Industrial Revolution was kind of fully running. You ask how long it takes for a city to fully develop. Um, And I don't think cities are ever fully developed. They change and they adapt with the needs of the population and global trends and the economy. And there's some traumatic events that happen that mean that some cities just disappear. So there's some natural disasters such as volcanoes, earthquakes, tsunamis that destroy cities. In some countries, cities almost seem to appear out of nowhere. There are plans for in Saudi Arabia, for example, that we're supporting through my work to build a new city called Neom. And they hope to provide a city that's going to house 11 million people. According to the UN, about 68% of the world's population will be living in cities by 2050. So there's going to be a lot more growth of cities coming up in the near future. But the question is also, can cities become too large? I live in London and we've got lots of issues around congestion levels, pollution levels, Not so many facilities for local population because so many people are arriving in the city. So the more people that arrive, the higher the demand is for things like housing and the more expensive housing becomes. There's also issues around where you would want to go and live. If you think about what you like as a person, very large cities can be quite overpowering. So although there's lots of provision of facilities, there's there's generally a higher quality of life in smaller cities and not in the very large ones. And if we look at happiness, uh, they do measure happiness <laughs> in our in our statistical agencies. Generally, those living in larger cities are less happy than those living in smaller cities.
Hello, my name is Sean Edgetone. I'm a founder of Westport Architects. We started out in 2016, uh, me and two of my best friends from university. As architects, our day-to-day -day sort of business is quite varied. So just in the middle of an entire day, we can spend a few hours drawing a building or doing some details or some picking out some specifications for different parts of the building. Other parts of the day is meeting clients and meeting engineers to make sure our buildings work. And also discussing different projects and different ideas within the practice as well, because we have quite a lot of different projects. Probably the best part of the job is working with your, your friends which include Basha as well. Hello, my name is Basha and I'm an associate architect at Westport Architects. My name is Bruna. I am nine years old and I live in Spain. How can buildings be more environmentally friendly? To make architecture more sustainable, I think it all comes down to materials. So, for example, are they natural or are they plastic? Where are they sourced from? So do we take them from a local quarry or do we take them from another continent? And that, that can have a huge influence on the sustainability factor. Also, how does building get the energy? Can it get the energy from solar panels or heating pumps? <laughs> or, for example, can it collect the water and provide habitat for the, for the animals? It also then dictates the lifespan of the building, because that's quite important. Do we build buildings to last or we build buildings to be able to make them disappear completely when their function ends and when, when they're no longer needed? So there's yeah, a lot to consider. And there are lots of different professions that deal with it as well. I think to make an environmentally friendly building, we need a lot of different ingredients. So um, it can be very challenging. Do architects choose the color of buildings? Yes, they do. Architects actually love to have full control over their projects. And the more they have to say, the better. Unfortunately, it's not always down to us to how the building looks in the end. In many cases, it is the client or the planning authority. Um, so, for example, if, if the, um, the building is in a, a very historic area, um, then it might be dictated of how the building looks like. So the freedom will be limited for us. Even though architects are known for, notoriously known for um, designing in black and white, there are a few famous ones that um, celebrate color in a very uh, successful way. So um, some of the examples include um, Pompidou Center in Paris, where Richard Rogers, who is famous for his high-tech um, architecture, um, decided to express all the services that we usually try to hide in architecture and paint them in bright red, yellow, blue colors. So it almost becomes an, an art piece. And another local, more local example is a Dulwich Pavilion by Inkai Lori, who created a color palace that um, is a, a beautiful um, array of, of colors. It's mesmerizing. And his main idea was behind it, putting color in, was to bring joy to people and, and share his experience of childhood that he had with the color. There are many reasons for why architects choose color in architecture. Um, some are to make a statement. Some are to make it functional, such as wayfinding, let's say. 
And the other one is to um, create an experience for, for a user. So to make them feel better, happy or peaceful, etc., etc. The way we try to introduce color into our buildings is through the materials we choose. So whether it's the brickwork or the timber or stone, um, we sort of go for more uh, natural approach in terms of how we express color. I personally love seeing um, special color in everyday life because I feel like sometimes everyone goes for safe muted options, but also at the same time, when you really um, try and use natural materials to their advantage and really bring out their beautiful color that they have, like terracotta, for example, beautiful material that you can use that can really accentuate the look and feel of a building. That's the way I or, or we as practice sort of approach putting color into, into buildings. Quite a lot of people are colorblind, so you need to be very aware of the palette of colors you're choosing. So it's not just one thing for it to look uh, nice to you, but also has to be functional for the users as well. So these are the kind of things that people who design stations or any kind of infrastructure projects who, which are used by a variety of people have to consider. So that's where color and its clever use plays an important part. And that color is yellow. <laughs> so whenever you see yellow and the tubes, etc., it's because people with vision impairment Yellow is the color they see most. How tall can buildings be? For hundreds of years, the tallest buildings in the world were usually churches, temples and monuments, such as the Pyramids of Giza in Egypt, which for nearly 4,000 years were the tallest structures on Earth. And after that, Lincoln Cathedral in England overtook it in the medieval times and other churches, so on and so on. When I lived in Edinburgh, and went to university in Edinburgh, the old town of the city had the first modern skyscrapers. And the, the reason why they built up and not out is just the practical reasons of being near the amenity spaces, being near where you work, and the topography of the city was quite complex. Onwards towards like the 1900s, technology evolved, so therefore new skyscrapers in New York, Chicago, built out of steel and concrete meant we can go higher, taller and now the Burj Khalifa is the tallest building in the world in Dubai which is nearly I think over over half a mile in height. Buildings are getting taller but there's no real answer to how tall buildings can be. It's more dictated by um, the costs, the practicalities of putting people up so high and things to do with wind. Um, is it sustainable building these these tall buildings in steel and concrete um, and there's many factors that dictate how tall our buildings can be now mm -hmm. yeah tall buildings can be very imposing and there is a rule that the most the human scale of a building is five story high and that's where people feel comfortable with so going tall doesn't necessarily mean that it's the, the better type of architecture My name is Valky Tirgali and I'm an urban designer and urban planner, which means that in my daily life I get to be curious about cities and how people use them, how they meet, how they commute, if they feel safe, 
um, while at the same time I'm trying to design them so as they could be safer, more green, playful and flexible. Hello, my name is James and I am nine and I live in the United States of America. Could every house include a jetpack? Wouldn't that be cool? I mean, um, my main question would be, is it something, is it like a jetpack that each member of the household could wear? Or is it uh, more like a mechanism that it's attached to the building? So, you know, one day my flat flies over from Bermondsey to Kentish Town to attach to the building of a friend and have lunch. <laughs> um, in general, maybe we could um, think of jetpacks as an opportunity to start a conversation on whether our cities could actually be more adaptable, flexible and why not mobile. However, being so cool comes at the price, I think. So there are some challenges. Uh, first of all, it feels like having a jetpack more like an individual means of transportation, whereas as planners, as um, citizens, I think we are trying to move more towards sharing inclusive and accessible public transport, but also more active transport. In that sense, wouldn't it be that the jetpack is just like another car we are trying to avoid? Even uh, in the car conversation nowadays, which has been more focused to smarter cars, um, autonomous cars, we uh, tend to focus and encourage um, sharing rather than owning. And then another big challenge uh, is how this could impact air quality and like movement. So what kind of fuel they would use? Would they be noisy? Would they disturb maybe other species that are flying? Maybe instead of the jetpacks we could discuss other ways of making our cities more flexible. For instance, what about a drone center or, you know, 3D fabrication labs in the park so that people could actually print a new bench or a new slide from recycled materials. Such ideas might help us a bit more to take care of um, our cities and like own them a bit more and share them a bit more, thus boosting more communities rather than individual choices and lifestyles. Hello, my name is Naomi, I'm 8 years old and I live in Germany. Last summer we were staying in London near the Hampstead Heath and we noticed a lot of foxes on rooftops and in our garden at night. I was really inspired by them and wondered what they were doing in a city where they lived and what they got up to. I'd like to know more about their nocturnal habits in the city and in the wild. It's really interesting because when I first moved to London, I was living in a Victorian house in Camden. We used to see them almost every night. I remember I took so many pictures. I was so triggered by the fact that it's such a you know, huge city. Like London, there were foxes walking around the city. It is something so uncommon back home. I think they appeared in the UK around the 30s when urban areas expanded to previous greenfields. So the new housing during this period was created and it kind of became an ideal habitat uh, for foxes because new household means people, means food, means abundant of leftover food. So foxes would dig and search for food and kind of sustain themselves attached to the, um, the household. And when it comes to their nocturnal environments, part of the ritual, I believe, is that they dig out holes, like safe underground spaces, and mostly to raise their, their cubs. 
but also I think to protect themselves. I think there's something really um, unique in how foxes uh, behave around the city and in their very own presence in the city. Uh, To my mind, they offer a valued interaction between man-made and more natural elements or kind of wildlife and urban life, uh, which overall creates this unique, nuanced uh, city experience. Why do people drive cars in cities? I think this is the hardest question. And the one that we really struggle to find solutions daily in our project as urban designers. Let's start with saying that driving is easy. Cars are affordable nowadays and cities so far have been designed to cater for the park. I believe it was around the early mid-20th century that cars became a must-have and actually gave freedom to people to move around the city. Of course, as we all know, that came with significant costs. People walk less, the air is polluted, instead of playgrounds and gardens, we got more parking spaces. However, uh, this is changing in many cities around the world. In the best example, it's not only about creating you know, more cycling um, paths or networks, but it's also about enabling and uh, making more attractive public transport and more connective modes of transport. So more like seamless connection between cycling, uh, walking, taking the bus or the train. And I think now we have a unique opportunity to grasp all this momentum that is uh, created around the willingness to adapt to climate change, fight climate change, the willingness to recover from uh, this pandemic in more like green ways or sustainable, safer ways. So even though it's tough, we could maybe try and achieve space for cycling and walking. Which are the weirdest type of materials used in construction? But uh, one of my favorite is uh, mushrooms. Um, the official name is uh, fungal mycelium, if I'm not mistaken. It's um, still in a kind of testing, prototyping phase. As far as I know, there has been one uh, pavilion uh, that they tried to um, construct from mushroom. As a solution, is a 100 biodegradable building material. Even though it might sound um, ambitious or challenging, there are a few merits to it. So there is an abundance of mushroom on the planet. Um, it colonizes soil and it's a kind of a natural glue, stitching different natural parts together. As I said, it's like 100% natural, organic. That is a really huge plus when we're thinking of the global environmental waste of building materials and the energy consumption, because we shouldn't forget that buildings are like us humans. They need fuel, food to perform, and they consume energy. So the cleaner the energy they uh, consume, the cleaner their kind of uh, byproduct to the planet, but also when we demolish them, if the material, the construction material is organic or can be recycled, then um, it's better from a climate point of view. Why don't cities fly? Don't they? (laughs) So for years there has been a focus on building things at last, fixate on the static and forget the mobile and the temporary. I think it's time for us to focus more 
on the um, value of the mobile, of the flying, of the temporary. Part of our building could fly one day. So, you know, one day you're walking down the South Bank and you see a new stack of canal houses that just flew from Amsterdam. So our homes are so smart, are actually smart cars that can fly and dwell, rest in a huge empty scaffolding. But going back and thinking of the present and the idea of a city more as a collection of uh, small, ever-moving, ever-changing realities created by us, people, that we actually inhabited, I would say that uh, cities in a way fly and transform as we people move and each time inhabit a different part of the urban fabric to create our own networks, our own spaces. following us on any platforms you listen to podcasts on and please leave us a rating or even subscribe if you love it that much studio anorak is proudly independent and to support this podcast and help us make lots more episodes please visit our website anorakmagazine.com or simply follow us on instagram at anorakmag or facebook and twitter at anorakmagazine 